Morning, everybody. Welcome to you all. My name is Jake Patton, and I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Adam Radcliffe, one of our other pastors, and uh, a lot of new faces out there this morning, and if that's you, this is your first time at DPC, uh, we'd like to say welcome, and we're glad you're here, or maybe um, this is the first time you've, you've been in a church, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been in a church. We'd like to tell you you're welcome as well, and we hope that uh, this place and this congregation uh, would be a safe place for you to explore the claims of Christ. I'm so glad you're with us as well. Um, if you have your Bibles, let's open together to Mark chapter 8. We have just finished our series on the book of Numbers, and we, we did that series over the summer. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in the gospel of Mark. And eight weeks up front, admittedly, is, is not enough time to cover the entire gospel of Mark, and we're not going to try to. Instead, we're going to pick a theme from the gospel of Mark, discipleship. Uh, what life looks like for um, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, what walking in his footsteps looks like, that is discipleship. We're going to be looking at that theme over the next eight weeks. More specifically, this morning we're looking at the cost of discipleship. What is it going to cost you as a follower of Jesus to submit to his will and to abandon your own will? And maybe if you're like me, you, you really appreciate people who are straight shooters. Um, if you're making a, a large purchase, not necessarily a small one, but a big one, right, don't, don't, don't do all the sales tactics, you know, don't do the manipulation, don't do you know, the, the selling me on the product before you actually tell me the price. Don't let there be any hidden costs, just shoot me straight. What's this going to set me back, right? I think we can all say we really appreciate salesmen who, who cut to the chase. On the gospel this morning, when it comes to the cost of following Jesus, that's exactly what he's going to do. There's no bait and switch. There's no manipulation. There's no hidden costs. He's going to shoot you straight. So the cost of discipleship, what does it look like? We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. We're going to end on verse 38, but really this morning we're going to focus on verse 34 and verse 35. Let's begin in verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Since the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you, O Lord, who are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you've had a day like this where nothing went as planned. You set out to accomplish or fix a particular problem in your house or with your car, and and maybe... By the end of the day, not only did you not fix the problem, but you actually made it worse. Ever had a a situation or a scenario like that? I could think of a few. Uh, The British were having a day just like this long ago when they were colonizing the country of India. They had a problem with cobras, with snakes. These snakes were killing civilians left and right. So here's what they decided to do. They came up with this plan to eradicate cobras. They said... If any civilian will bring in a dead cobra, the local government will pay you two cents. And so they enacted this plan, and the snakes started rolling in. And we don't know how long it took for them to realize this, but the Indians realized that, hey, we have a real opportunity for some capital gains here. Let's start farming and reproducing cobra snakes in our house. So in spare rooms, spare compartments, they actually had cobra farms. And when they got to the certain size, they would slaughter them and take them into their local government. Well, again, we don't know how long this went on, but soon the British government found out about it. And they did what all of us would have done. Um, Same instinct. They said, the COBRA program, done. No more. No more pay for COBRAs, right? But that created a bigger problem, didn't it? Because what happened? All of these local Indians have these cobra farms in their house, and now they're worth absolutely nothing. So what did they do? They opened the door, opened the compartment, and let the cobras go all the way back out and into the wild. So not only did the British not fix the problem, they actually made it worse. The cobra population increased. Hate days like that. You... Peter is having one of those days. Uh, in our passage uh, this morning in Mark chapter 8. He's coming off an event where uh, his sails just got a little bit of air put back into him. Jesus says, who am I? And Peter says courageously and truthfully, you are the Christ. You are the promised Messiah. You are God incarnate. And then Jesus pulls the disciples aside and says very plainly, here's what's going to happen to me in the days ahead. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scorned. And ultimately, I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And then Peter, with wind in his sails, blows it. And we don't see this in the text, but I imagine it looks something like this. You know, Peter listening to Jesus say, like, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm leaving. Imagine him going, um, uh, disciples, I got this. Y'all sit tight. Jesus, can you... Come over here for just a second. What are you thinking? If you leave, who will teach us? If you leave, who will heal? Who would give sight to the blind? Who's going to make the lame 
walk. There are people by the hundreds coming into your kingdom. If you leave, it's over. If you leave, what will we do? And it's an instinct. We just kind of go like, I probably would have said the same thing. And this is where Peter is met with one of the harshest rebukes in the New Testament. Get behind me, Satan. And we go, yikes. Was it really that bad? What Peter did? But here's what Peter did not know. And here's what you and I need to know. is the way we kind of show up in this story, in this narrative of our lives, is in Jesus' own words. We don't have the things of God in mind. We have the things of man in mind. We grow up assuming and thinking that this world is all that there is. And because of that, I need a bucket list. I've got to get these things accomplished because if I don't, I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. So I have to scurry and I have to live my life frantically because I've got to get it all in. This is the way we approach work. It's not worshipful. It doesn't feel like it's an act unto God, but it's how can I enjoy as much of this life as I possibly can? How much can I work? How much can I earn so I could just have happiness and joy? We approach social media the same way. I'm going to get my joy and happiness from this, from the world, putting my eyes on the things of man and not on the things of God. And what Peter didn't know at this, at this point, and what we need to know, is that God is not after just our external obedience in this passage. He's after our very soul. And what Peter doesn't know is that his very soul is at stake. If your eyes are on the things of man and not the things of God, that's the recipe for disaster and destruction and for peril. And that's what God wants for Peter. And that's what, honestly, what God wants for you and me. Not just our external obedience. He wants us, our very souls. And in the life that is to come, he wants that fellowship with you. Is that not good news? That that's what he wants from you? Is you. He wants Peter. Not Peter's obedience. He wants Peter. And so what Peter needs to realize, and what you and I need to realize from this passage is the cost and what it's going to look like to live life through the eyes of God with the things of God in mind and not the things of man. And so for the three points this morning, um, if you're keeping notes, one word points. So I want to look at the cost, the fuel, and the promise. The cost, the fuel, and the promise. First, the cost. Look at verse 34 again with me. Notice the cost is twofold. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself, and second, take up his cross and follow me. Now, Madonna has told us to express yourself, Parks and Recreation has told us to treat yourself, Eminem has said, Lose yourself. And in contrast with what the world says and what all these other people have said, Jesus comes into this story narrative and says, no, it's the exact opposite. Deny yourself. That's the first cost. Deny yourself. This word deny means to reject. It means to say no to. It means to disown something. In other words, what Jesus is telling us here, the first cost of someone who wants to follow me is is you're going to have to deny, lose, and disown your very self. But again, this is how we all show up. We don't have to teach children 
how to be self-indulgent. We don't have to teach children or young adults how to be selfish. We've got that down pretty good, don't we? So one of the costs of following Christ is, is, is reordering our, our list of priorities. It's realigning things, and it's a painful, it's an incredibly difficult process. Why? Because as one writer says, the kingdom itself is heavily defended territory. Not only are, are, are we self-indulgent people, we love to self-indulge. It is our love and our passion and our zeal. Just to convince you of this point, an exercise, I heard another pastor offer this once, and I offer it to you. Over the course of this next week, try to do one completely, completely 100% selfless act. Completely selfless. You get no applause for it. You get no pats on the back. You get no appreciation for it. 100% completely selfless. Try to do that this week. It is the definition of a fool's errand. It cannot be done. This is our problem. By nature, we self-indulge. But God says we get, that has to change. We have to self-deny. He doesn't stop there. The next cost comes in the second part of the verse. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross. Six years ago when Paige and I and the family moved to Greenville, I was sitting in the line at DMV. And I'll never forget it. Several seats in front of me was a gentleman and there was nobody sitting around him. Uh, And this gentleman had around his ankle an ankle monitor. And the band on this ankle monitor was three inches wide. This thing was huge. And this box that was on the outside of his ankle was about this big. And on this box was a blinking red light. It was not subtle. It was not camouflaged. This man obviously did something, and he was on house arrest. But he had to wear his shame. He had to wear his guilt on the outside. Most of us, we can kind of hide it in our inside. We all feel shame and guilt to a degree. But this guy, he had to wear it on his outside. And at first, when I saw it, I kind of thought, like, gosh, what did he do? And then my second thought was, how awful would it be to have to wear that thing and go out in public and have to accomplish things you have to accomplish with everybody knowing and seeing you and going, that guy's a criminal, right? Remember, When Mark writes this gospel, there are two cultures that have kind of overlapped over each other right now. One is the Jewish culture, and the other is the Roman culture. And what the Jews know, and what they have seen, is that if someone is sentenced to die in the Roman culture, and they're going to be crucified, from the place from where you're sentenced to the spot in which you're going to be killed, you have to take the cross, that beam, that piece of wood that is going to bear your weight, and you have to carry it from A to be. And all along the road, all along the way are people mocking and scorning, right? To actually bear that cross on your body on the outside is at the same time to bear shame, embarrassment, scorn, to be mocked. And what Jesus says to followers of Christ, Peter, these crowds, and to us this morning, is if we want to follow him, we have to be in that perpetual practice of emptying ourselves, of denying ourselves, disowning ourselves, and we have to be ready for embarrassment. We have to be ready for scorn, for shame, because of who you're associated with, and maybe even death, maybe even martyrdom. You might even be killed for your faith. 
Now, maybe if you're here this morning and, again, you're exploring the truths of Christianity, you might be thinking, okay, pastor, you're not doing your God any favors by saying all of this on the front end. That sounds awful. Who would willingly do that? Who would willingly offer themselves up and deny themselves and willingly endure scorn and shame? I'd love to answer that question. Hang with me. That's the cost. Well, what about the fuel? Uh, Look with me again at verse 35, um, the second part of it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, We'll save it. What I want to suggest this morning is that those three words, for my sake, are the most important words in this passage. And here's why. Consider for a moment um, a launch pad. And on this launch pad is a rocket. And what we all know and assume that a firecracker is not going to get that thing into orbit. What does that rocket need? It needs a power bigger and greater than itself, right, to get that payload up into orbit. And we're hearing these commands of God this morning to deny yourself fully, not just once, but for the rest of your life. Endure scorn, shame, embarrassment. That is a tall task. That is a tall obedience to get into orbit. Therefore, we need something, a fuel, a strength that's got to come from outside of us. It's got to be supernatural. It's got to be big, right? To do something as big as that. Well, let's imagine for a moment a modern parable. Two people. Over here, we have a monk, and over here, we have a Wall Street exec. Monk, Wall Street exec. Let's take the monk first. This man has been in the monastery his whole life. He can never think of a time in which he was not following Jesus Christ. And when, it, when it's come to disowning himself, denying himself, more than anybody else in his monastery, he's done it more. And because of that, he's had to suffer some embarrassment, some scorn, some shame from others especially those outside the monastery, like, what a fool. What a fool. And at the ripe age of 80 years old, he finally passes away. And standing before God, he says, hey, God, you remember that, that Mark chapter 8 passage about if anybody would follow you, um, he'd deny himself and he'd take up his cross? Remember that verse? And God's like, yeah, I wrote it. Remember that verse? Like, exhibit A. The last 80 years. Isn't that something? Look what I did. Isn't that something? That's got to count for something, right? Now, pause. That's the monk. Come over here to the, uh, the Wall Street exec. This exec, she's been in corporate America for her whole life, has no need or want for anything because she has more cash, more resources, more power, and more privilege than she can enjoy, than her children can enjoy, than her grandchildren could even enjoy. Wants for nothing. But if she were here, she'd be the first to tell you that never set foot in church. I'm not a believer. I don't buy in this whole religion stuff. I don't buy it. And every day on her way to work, she passes a man sitting outside her building's front door. And this man is doing this with his hands. And he's looking for help. And she doesn't say it on the outside. She doesn't verbalize it. But inwardly, she just says, that man needs to get his life together. What a loser. And then the weekend rolls around, and and one of her friends asks her and invites her to church for the first time, and she agrees. And at this church service, she hears the gospel clearly portrayed. 
that there is a God who is rich in mercy who will forgive you of your sins. But because his demands of perfection are so high that your righteousness has to come from somewhere else. And that's what Christ will give you if you will receive it and rest in it. The righteousness of Christ. And that just won't make you square with the house. That will make you an heir of all things. And what we would say is, is genuinely and from the heart, she embraces the gospel for the first time. Her heart's changed. So Monday rolls around, she goes to work, and there's that man sitting out in front of her, her building. And for the first time she goes, wait a minute. If God, who is rich in mercy, has forgiven me all of my trespasses, if he, if he is in the business of giving people what they don't deserve, then I am the chief of sinners. Why would I not then, because of what he's done for me, help this person? And because she didn't carry her wallet, all she has is a little bit of spare change, but she gives everything she has. It's just loose change. And in doing so, one of her co-workers sees her doing this and walks into the office with her and says, you know you're just perpetuating the problem of homelessness by giving that person spare change, right? When did you become a softie? Good grief. And not ten steps into her building, she has a heart attack and she dies. And she's standing before God. The question is, we've got the monk here, the Wall Street exec here. Which of these two people has embodied from the heart this command of Jesus to deny yourself and take up your cross. We want to say it's the monk, right? Because look at everything he did. Look at all the good things he did, all the, all the self-denial, all the scorn and shame he endured. But who is he doing that for? He was doing that for himself. And that's not what this verse says. This verse says, if you will lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, that's Jesus talking, you've lost your life You have endured scorn and shame for your sake. That's not what the text says. But that's how we act. It's actually this this Wall Street exec who embodies it better than the monk. That kind of flips things on its head, doesn't it? Here's what false religion says. Here's what false Christianity says. Perform. Duty. Act. Deny yourself. Endure scorn and shame, and you'll get God. That is not Christianity, and that is not the gospel. That is not good news, because how much? How much of that do I have to do to get in? That's terrorizing. That's a hamster wheel of performance. That's not what the gospel is. What the gospel is is self-denial, the emptying of yourself, the bearing of your cross. You can't do it, but somebody else did. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that. He denied himself. He bore the cross to get you. We don't do those things to get God. It's the reverse. He has done those things to get you, Peter, you believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you this morning, if you would but believe. Can you hear that? Before we talk about the promise, the reward, of acts of self-denial, of enduring scorn and shame. We've got to talk about Jesus Christ. What Paul would say later in the letter to the Philippians is that Jesus Christ emptied himself of his glory. He left the throne room of God. He took on human nature. He became a servant. You hear what Paul is saying? He's saying Jesus denied himself fully and perfectly. 
And not only that, he did not figuratively take up a cross, but he actually bore a cross. The wrath that you and I deserved for the punishment of our sin, our self-centeredness, our self-indulgence, right? He took the penalty from all of that onto himself. And he gave us his perfect record. So when we say, where is our perfect denial of self? And where is our cross-bearing? We would say that it is at the right hand of God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not figuratively, but literally. And because of that, and because the most important questions in my soul have been answered now about my spiritual life, where I'm going, what's going to happen to me? What Jesus has declared to you is that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are immortal. And there's not a question mark at the end of that. There's an exclamation point at the end of that. You are going to go be with him in the world that is to come. And if that is true, and if that is worth banking on, then can we just let the pressure out for a minute and go, I don't have to get everything done that I want to get done in this life. I don't have to indulge myself. Why? It's because God has already indulged in you. He's already made you immortal. He's already made you an heir. He's already given you eternal life. And if God has given you the absolutely the best of everything... You can look at the things of the earth and just kind of go, meh. Right? I don't have to live like Peter, like this world is all there is. I don't have to live frantically, self-centered, self-indulgent, self-protecting, self-preserving. Why? Because my questions have been answered in Christ Jesus. I can live a life of self-denial. My time is not mine. My money is not mine. My work is not mine been bought through Christ. Well, what about the promise? Let's close with this. Again, look at the, the last part of, of verse 35. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. But will save it unto what? Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, what Peter forgot and what we need to remember from this passage is that we live in this reality of two worlds. This age that we're in, this world that we're in is one that's full of pain and suffering and trials. And Jesus is a straight shooter. He doesn't skirt around those issues. He's embodied it. He's endured it. But there's another world that's coming, and it begins with Jesus' second coming. Again, what we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus' first coming. That's his first advent. He came in humility, clothed in human flesh from the Virgin Mary, came quietly, did not come with trumpets or loud fanfare. He came in humility. That's not how the second coming of Christ is going to look, as he just described. He said, Christ is coming back but this time with the Father's glory. This time with the holy angels, it's going to look and feel a whole lot different than Christmas in a glorious way. And that's the world and that's the age to come. And the question we're asking ourselves now is, is okay, if that's the promise, is if we deny ourselves, if we empty ourselves, if we give up ourselves in this life, that we will have life in the next. And that's the one that's permanent, right? Right? That's the life that has no end. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes says, this world, this life is like a vapor. We're, we're going to forget about it. It's so short. It doesn't feel short, but it is compared to eternity. This one's the vapor, not that one. How do we know that we can really trust God at his word, his promise? How do we know that there really is a reward of eternal life? Well, Jesus mentions it. Again, look back at verse 31. The very last phrase, but I'm going to read the whole thing. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, what? He's going to rise again. You might ask it this way. You know, what good did did the suffering of Christ bring him? What good did enduring scorn and shame bring Christ? It killed him. And we would say, yes, to one degree. But then what happened after that? He was raised from the dead. And what Paul says in Romans is that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Showing us, not just telling us, but showing us that, hey, this world and this life is temporary. It's not all that there is. Don't live like that is all that there is. There is a life to come. And and Jesus' body was so glorified and so changed that even the disciples didn't recognize him at first glance. But what did Jesus do? He showed his body. He showed his life. He showed the power of the resurrection to his disciples, telling us what? That the promise is made good. And if you are in Christ Jesus as fully and as holy as, as, as Paul and as the New Testament says you are, then what happens to Christ is going to happen to you. Because you are literally in Him. And where He goes, you will go. And where He resides, you will reside. And where is Christ Jesus? He is in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. And the worst thing that can happen to you in this life is that you deny yourself. You endure scorn and shame. And then you get to enjoy God for the rest of eternity. Not a bad trade-off. Right? Because that's the permanent one. And that one's not temporary. That one's permanent. Remember those old Solo Flex and Bowflex commercials from the 90s? If you use this machine, you'll be a ninja like Chuck Norris. You'll be a 10 like Christy Brinkley. Those things have littered garage sales ever since. Haven't come through on the promises they made. But how do we know our Father has come through on the promises He made? Look at Jesus. He is not in the tomb. He is not in the ground. He is glorified and with His Father. And that's where we get to go if we would but deny ourselves in this life. A couple points of application before we close. Culturally, I mean, fresh out of the headlines, I think it's appropriate to say that passages like this Commands like this from Jesus are the reason why the modern movement of white supremacy and Christianity have absolutely zero overlap. Zero. The heart behind the white, the modern white supremacy movement is self-protection, self-indulgence, tribe protection, tribe indulgence. We need to defend. We need to honor. We need to fight. And Jesus says nothing of the sort. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, your life is marked by self-denial. 
And the ability to endure scorn and shame. Why? Because you know how the story ends. You don't have to fear others. They don't coexist. But the good news for you, if, if that's something you're struggling with, is just like Peter, who denied Jesus three times, there's restoration and there's forgiveness. That's good news. Husbands and wives, what if marriage looked like this? Rather than waking up in the morning and going like, uh... I need to die to myself, die to my spouse. What are some good things I can do today to make that person happy? What if marriage looked like this? Consider what God gave up in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he give up to wed himself to his church? What did he sacrifice? More than we know and more than we can sympathize with. He gave up the throne room, fellowship with the Father. He gave up glory, the angels, this place of privilege and power to what? To take on human flesh just like us. And what if in the mornings we woke up and we cataloged that and we said, Lord, because of that, rather than looking at marriage as a way to self-indulge, make me happy, what if because of what Christ has done for the church and done for me, instead of the I want to do list today, I am going to do my honey-do list. Because now you're doing it for the Lord's sake and not for yours. What if marriages looked like that? You know what would happen? Marriages would sing. And that all too elusive joy and peace that we're looking for in our life and that we're looking for in our marriage comes in incredibly unconventional ways. It comes through your death, the giving up of yourself. Only life comes from death. The way up is down. That's the Christian paradox. Maybe you're a student and maybe you're about to go into the professional world. And if you're like me, the reason why I started out as a business major is because I wanted to make money, and I wanted to make money because I wanted to have an easy life, and I wanted to have nice stuff. Another form of self-indulgence. What if, what if our schoolwork and, and what if our jobs looked more like this? Look, what if you woke up in the morning and you considered, you know, everything Jesus did made the world better. What did he do? He gave sight to the blind. He reconciled parties that were broken, locked in conflict. He made the world a better place. And, and rather than, than using school or business as a means of self-indulgence, what if I practice self-denial because that's what God did for me? He denied himself to make this world better. What if I did the exact same thing now? How can I make this world through my studies or through my work a better place? You know what happens when you do that? Work stops feeling like drudgery. It stops feeling obligatory or dutiful. It starts to feel like worship. Because you're doing it for him and not for yourself. It's for his sake and for the gospels. Last one. I think about social technology a lot. I'm on it and use it occasionally. The temptation is to find our value and our worth from it. By 10 o'clock, maybe sometimes in a day, you've got a sour stomach because um, people aren't paying attention to you. And you don't feel like your posts or your words or your thoughts are, are getting enough attention. We've all experienced that to one degree or another. But what if, what if your morning or what if your day looked a little bit differently? What if it was, you woke up and you said, I'm going to go read that passage in Mark 8 again. And here's why. Again, one of the great things about God is he's not just after Peter's obedience. Who is he after? He's after Peter. He wants Peter to share an eternal life with him. And that's why there's such a strong rebuke. Peter just doesn't know it. Your very soul is at stake, Peter, if you go this route. You're not going to fix things. You're just going to make things worse. 
Deny yourself. Why is Jesus so harsh sometimes? It's because your very soul is at stake and he wants you. And because he's gone to great lengths to get you and win you back and be one with you forever, maybe instead of using social media as as a means of self-indulgence and self-identity, maybe this week you just decide, I'm going to encourage five different people through social media this week. Not to win God, not to win favor with God, but because God has favored me, because God has valued me, because God has respected me. And so as a form of self-denial, who can I encourage? Who can I lift up? What would happen with social media if that started happening? People would be edified. People would find joy and peace. Again, it's elusive. But where does it come from? It's a byproduct of seeking first the kingdom. Not having in mind the things of man, but having in mind the things of God. And that comes through our own self-denial. May it be so, and may it be for his glory and for his sake. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us this morning, not just to listen, we've heard words, but we want to eat your words. And we want them to make their way into our very insides, to change us, to conform us. We want to trust you with all of our heart, our souls, our minds, and our strength. So would you again impress upon us uh, the work of Jesus, the story of Jesus, his love for us, his perfect life, his sacrifice, and help us to embrace this from the heart. Uh, Help us uh, to live lives of self-denial, and not for our own sake, and not for self-promotion, but that we might make much of Christ and his work on our behalf. Help us to not live for this world. Give us peace and joy that comes from seeking you with our hearts. Give us faith to the end. And for this and all things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.